You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. One of the most famous parts of the American Declaration of Independence says that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And if you look at the New York Times bestsellers list, you'll see a long list of happiness-related titles, titles such as Soul for Happy, the happiness equation, happiness, uh, habits of a happy brain. And next time you go out and about your business, if you listen closely to conversations, you might hear someone say they did something or they didn't do something because they just wanted to be happy. And funnily enough, in a few more weeks on March 20th, there is actually an International Day of Happiness that is celebrated by people. And so if you think about this concept of happiness, it's clearly entrenched in the modern way of life. Well, this morning, I'm here to tell you some good news. I'm here to tell you God also wants you to be happy. And not only does he want you to be happy, he has told you how to get that happiness. God makes it really plain for us. You don't have to spend $25 this morning to buy a book. You don't have to go on a week-long, $3,000 course to find the secret of happiness. By God's grace, we're going to learn it in the next 40 minutes, and it's going to be totally free. Now, the secret to the pursuit of happiness can be found in Psalm 1, which is our text this morning, which we just read. Psalm 1 was written by King David, and it's obviously the very first book of the book of Psalms. And it's not a coincidence that it's the first book. It was deliberately arranged there to set the central theme for the rest of the Psalms. This should be really exciting for us because its message and its deliberate positioning tells us that happiness is central to God's plan for us. Human beings desire to be happy, right? We're seeing that. And God, the creator of human beings, desires us to be happy. It's a glorious match, isn't it? The six short verses in this psalm contains the entire formula for happiness. And it speaks to both the young and the old. And we have a mix of these people in our congregation this morning. And so if you're not familiar with it, I would encourage you, after this morning, please go home and memorize it. It will be the best investment that you make this week. Our sermon will consist of four parts. The first part, we will consider what exactly are the characteristics of true happiness. Secondly, we will think about the formula to true happiness. Thirdly, we will see the outcomes of pursuing happiness. And finally, we will look at what happens when you don't pursue happiness. So let's turn to our first part. And our first part starts with verse 1. And we see clearly the words here, blessed is the man. And immediately, we need to stop and think. Now, when my family first moved to Texas about eight years ago, I noticed a really curious thing. Whenever we were invited to someone's house, we would see 
a door sign or a photo frame or a piece of decoration with the word blessed on it. And maybe you have something like that in your homes this morning. And sometimes I would ask someone, how are you doing today? And they would respond, oh, I'm blessed. Have you ever heard that? Or maybe you use that yourself? Now, because I'm not from the South, I actually had to Google what that phrase actually meant. And it turns out when people say, I'm blessed, what they actually mean is one of two things. They could mean, I feel really lucky because I have a family, I have a job, I have good health, things are going great. Or it could also mean, I'm feeling really grateful, right? Again, because I'm not going through hardships at the moment. And maybe it's a combination of both. And both of these things are really good things to, to be grateful for and to be thankful for. But the problem with this type of blessing is that it very much depends on the circumstances, doesn't it? What positive things that are going on in your life at the moment, what things that you may have, what new things that you've just bought or experienced. This worldview tells you that if you have something, if something is good uh, that's happening to you, then you'll be happy. And it's entirely based on feelings and emotions, and it's not grounded on anything more permanent. And this leads to the pursuit of things and circumstances to keep that emotional high happening. It leads quickly to idolatry because the world tells you that only if you have these things happening in your life will you have happiness. Money, status, power, love, beauty, comfort, health. And so people work themselves to death earning money so that they keep on buying things. Or they pursue relationship after relationship after relationship just to feel the love and warmth of a man or a woman. Or they compromise on their integrity at school or at work just so that they can get ahead of everyone else. Or they spend all their time and effort worrying about staying young and beautiful and healthy. Day after day, their lives are caught up with just busyness and the distraction of trying to do something to keep that emotional high up. And sadly, when the music stops, they realize that they're not happy at all. Just look at the number of divorces that we have in our society today. But thankfully, when the Bible talks about happiness, about blessed, this word here in verse 1, it is much more than the temporary emotional highs that the world offers. In fact, we'll see that it is permanent, abundant, and enviable. Permanent, abundant, and enviable. The word used here in verse 1 literally means happy or joyful. And that word joyful is not describing a state of emotion or feeling because of something that's happened. It's describing a state of being that's permanent. And so, for example, most of the people here in this room are American citizens. You became citizens by virtue of your birth into this country. That doesn't change based on circumstance. You could be having a bad day today and you're still an American. You could be having a great day today and you're still an American. So this word that is used for blessed here is saying that true happiness is not situational. It's a disposition. It's a state of being that you are in. It doesn't come and go based on circumstances. There is a degree of permanence to it. 
And not only does the Hebrew word translate a state of being, it also conveys an abundance of blessing. In English, when we talk about something, we can use the singular or the plural, right? But in Hebrew, you actually have three ways of talking about something. You can talk about something in the singular, the dual, or the plural. And when the plural is used, it's deliberately being used to indicate an abundance of something. And so when verse 1 says, blessed is the man, it's using the plural that is meant to convey plentifulness. And so in English, this could be rendered joyful, joyful, joyful is the man. Or, oh, how abundantly joyful is this man. One commentator says that the Hebrew is actually trying to convey that there is so much abundance that this person should be envied. Or put oppositely, if you don't have this type of joyfulness, you should be jealous and you should be going after it. And so, friends, do you see that the happiness that God is offering is far, far more superior than the happiness that the world promises? God's happiness is abundant in nature and it's not based on the circumstances. The world promises cotton candy. We take it with the hope that it will satisfy us and it will keep us full, but yet immediately when it goes into our mouths, it just dissolves and it's gone and we're left wanting for more. Its happiness just comes and goes. Let me ask you this morning, what kind of happiness have you been chasing so far? Could it be that this morning God is showing you that you've been chasing a happiness that just does not satisfy? Perhaps you've been looking to your circumstances. Maybe there are idols in your life, money, power, love, comfort. Friends, God wants you to have a buffet that is everlasting, that just doesn't fade away like cotton candy. And therefore, we should exert all of our effort into getting this type of happiness. We should go all in on the edge of our seats asking, how? How do I get this happiness? Let's move on to our next section. And it's going to be a longer section uh, across the four parts. So how can you get true happiness? Well, the formula for happiness has two parts to it. God tells us in really simple terms what we shouldn't do and what we should do. The first thing that God tells us to achieve true happiness is that you must not let sin fester in your life. At the very first sign of sin, you must kill it. You don't let it take hold of it. Don't let it entertain you. Don't try it out for fun. Sin is serious. Take a look at verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The psalm tells us there is a pattern of sin and it gets progressively worse and worse if you don't deal with it immediately. That's why I'm encouraging all of us to kill it straight away. Verse 1 talks firstly about how a person gets comfortable with sin as they progressively get ensnared. Their tolerance for sin increases until it no longer bothers them when they're exposed to it. Look at the verbs that are being used here. First, they walk then they stand, and then finally they sit. Now, we live in a neighborhood that's generally really friendly, and it's great to meet new people. Have you ever met someone at the park or a new neighbor? And when you first start out, because you don't know them yet, you may find yourself just strolling together, the kids are playing in the park, there's movement, and your time together is relatively short. You'll stand and chat to them, 
or walk together, but you can simply walk away. And then as you get more comfortable, you get to know them and see them a few more times, you end up standing and your time together is longer and you chat and you stay. And then after a few more times, you deliberately take time to slow down and hang out together. You might invite them over to your place. You might arrange for a picnic at the park. And before you know it, it's very natural for all of you to be together all the time. And that's how sin works. Initially, your pattern of sin is infrequent. It happens once or twice, but then you give yourself a free pass and it becomes okay. You may think, I only look at pornography once or twice a month. That's not too bad, right? There are people out there who are totally addicted on it hours at a time. There are people out there having affairs. That's not me. And then it gathers in frequency and regularity. And before you know it, you're saying exactly the conversation that I just had. It's totally okay. You're comfortable with it. You're consumed by it. You don't even notice it's sin because you're already seated comfortably in that space. Verse 1 also talks about how sin increasingly corrupts by giving us three types of people as examples. The first is the wicked person who doesn't have God in their lives. They have no thoughts about God, and they ignore the fact that God is holy and commands holiness in our lives. They are without God, and therefore they are wicked. Then there is the sinner who actively rebels against God, despite knowing all that he commands. And here we move from ignorance towards intentional breaking of his laws. And finally, there is a scoffer or the scorner, depending on your translation, who deliberately shows contempt for every form of godliness. This is a person who is actively crusading against all that is holy and pure and righteous. And step by step, as a person gets ensnared by sin, their place amongst the ungodly becomes worse. And we see this in our own experience, don't we? Some of us have friends who we grew up with in Sunday school. When they were younger, some of them even professed to be Christians. And as they grew up, and, and sometimes they would sin out of ignorance, as the teenage years went by, they were not obedient. They did not mortify sin and kill sin. By the time they get to college, they no longer identify as Christians and would intentionally go against all that they've been, learned, uh, they've been taught. And now perhaps 10, 20 years later, you catch up, you bump into them in the local town center, and you find out they openly hate Christians and they scoff at the Christian faith. Friends, God is telling us that the way to permanent, abundant, and enviable happiness is through staying well away from sin, because sin will slowly drag you down into hell. That doesn't mean that we'll be perfect or that we'll never find sin in our lives, but it does mean that we must be actively on guard and be fighting against sin. This is not a nice to have. It is core to the formula for happiness. And so if you want true happiness, then the first step is to fight and to flee from sin. The second thing that God tells us to do to achieve true happiness is found in verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The psalm tells us to achieve true happiness. We must soak God up. We must soak his word up. Verse 2 tells us to delight and meditate on God's law. What does this mean? 
Let's take these concepts of delighting and meditating one at a time. Some of you may know that I started at my career out as a lawyer. And once upon a time when I was going through law school, I often had to read reams and reams of case law and legislation. I can tell you categorically I did not delight in them. And they often put me to sleep. I will tell you what I delight in. Once a year on my birthday, my wife makes me a special treat. It's an Australian caramel slice. At the bottom, you have a crunchy cookie base that's mixed with coconut. Then there's a middle layer that's got salted caramel. It's sweet and gooey and chewy. And then at the top, there is a layer of salted dark chocolate. And such is my delight, I would nibble on it a little bit at a time so that it will last as long as possible. And that's what delighting is like, isn't it? We enjoy it. We can't get enough of it. We want it to last forever. Now, what about meditation? Now, today, there are a lot of books and apps about meditation. And if you've ever used any of them, they literally just tell you, look, sit comfortably in a place, close your eyes, think of nothing at all. And the point here is to clear your mind so that it's completely emptied out. But this is not the meditation that the Bible talks about here. Actually, it's quite the opposite. When the Bible tells us to meditate, we are to be deliberate about filling our minds up. In fact, the same word meditate, if you turn with me, can be found in Psalm 2, which Mason preached on a number of weeks ago. When the psalmist talks about the nation's conspiring and plotting against God and His anointed one. That's right, the word meditate and conspire are the same words in the Psalms. And that's because there is an intentional, deliberate planning that's going on. For the godly person, this means intentionally filling their minds up with God's Word, trying to understand what God is saying about Himself, trying to understand how to live in accordance with His words. For the ungodly person, it's about planning and scheming wicked ways to rebel against God. And so when we meditate on God's laws, there is a purposeful and intentional turning over again and again and again, thinking about it, about God's Word and how it applies to our lives. Let me try and illustrate this in a different way. Our son is going through a stage at the moment, he's two years old, where sometimes he would refuse to swallow during a meal. Have you guys ever had that in your kids? You'll give him a piece of chicken, right? And he would chew on it and chew on it and chew on it, and then he tucks it away in the back of his cheek. And then when he gets told off, he would pull it out and chew on it and chew on it again, pretending to eat it, and he'll suck on it. And when you're not looking, he tucks it away up in the other cheek. And after about 30 minutes, he pulls it out to show you, and you can see it's been completely chewed through, and the flavor is all gone. It's extracted, and there is no taste left because he's gone through it so many times. And that's what we're being told to do here when we meditate. We're being told to turn God's Word over and over and over again in our minds until we've extracted every last bit of goodness from it. Now, for those of us who grew up going to church, you may understand the law as the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And technically, yes, you're right, the reference to the law here indeed is a reference to the Torah. But it will be helpful for us to think about how the Israelites would have received this and how they understood the Torah. 
Because you see, it's, to them it was much more than a collection of five books in the Old Testament. To the Israelites, the, the Torah wasn't just a historical record or genealogies or regulations about how to offer sacrifices. The Torah was taken as containing God's will for human life as divinely revealed and implemented in the history of Israel and of all mankind. And so, similarly, in this post-apostolic age, we should not see the Bible as a bunch of stories or poems or letters from Paul or do's and don'ts that's designed to make us stuffier, holier-than-thou Christians. Instead, we should take this book as the revelation of God about Himself and his plans for mankind. And what does God exactly say about himself? Well, let's start from the beginning very quickly. God says he's the creator God who made heaven and earth. The Bible tells us that Adam was created sinless and perfect, but chose to disobey God. And as a result, every descendant after Adam is corrupt in their hearts and is also inclined towards disobedience. But thankfully, God put in place a great plan of salvation to purchase a people for His own possession. God sent His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for sinners. And after that, He rose again on that third day. God's Word tells us that whoever repents and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ would be reconciled to Him and one day dwell in heaven with Him. And those who do not do that, those who disobey, will be judged and sent into eternal punishment. In short, when we read the Bible, when we read these words, we're essentially getting to know God and getting to know His great plan for salvation for mankind. And when we understand this biblical perspective, we'll begin to see why Psalm 19 can say that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Yes, more to be desired is the law than fine gold, much fine gold. Now, According to recent research by LifeWay, 85% of American households own a Bible. 85%. That's almost everyone here. If you look around, there might be two or three of us who do not own a Bible. And the average household uh, owns 4.3 Bibles. And so every family will have at least four Bibles. And that means millions of people have access to Bibles, right? But having the Bible does not mean that you know God, does it? The state of Christianity in America today and in the, in the Western world is frankly at an all-time low because people are not meditating and dwelling on God's Word. The level of deliberate engagement with God's Word is low. People don't want to look at it. They don't want to read it. They don't want to think about it. They just want to be told moral principles about how to live life well and how to feel good about myself. They want to hear about how to live a good life, but they don't want to hear God's way for living a good life. The book of 2 Timothy 4 tells us 
For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. And as Paul writes this letter to Timothy, what does he say to Timothy? What's his instruction? He didn't tell Timothy to improve his music ministry or to introduce dramatic theater to get everyone's attention or to make things a little bit more fun at church. His response in verse uh, 1 of that chapter is to charge Timothy to preach the word. Preach the word. Paul is saying the more people want to get away from God's word, the more you need to preach it. And that's why at Redeemer Bible Church, we place so much emphasis on expository preaching. That's why we ask members to stand when we read the Word of God together. That's why we ask you to turn to your Bibles and to follow along, because it's through meditation on the Word that you will come to know God. God's Word is His prescribed way of speaking to us. As Joe read earlier in, the, uh, in 2 Timothy, the Bible is sufficient for all matters of faith and practice. God doesn't intend to keep on speaking to us through dreams and visions and other prophetic words. He speaks to us through this word, the Bible. So when you hear the faithful preaching of God's word, reflect on what is being said. Turn it over your head during the service, on the ride home, during the course of the week, speak with your spouse, speak with your children about it, speak with brothers and sisters in the church about it. This afternoon, when we meet at the Piccolo's household for a time of fellowship, I hope some of us at least will be talking about God's word there. And as you do this, you'll find yourself being blessed with true eternal happiness. Friends, as we leave this section, let me ask you, what method you using to get happiness? Is it God's method or your own method? If you claim to be a Christian, are you actively fighting against sin in your life? Are you being watchful every day or are you giving sin a free pass? How do you relate to God's word? Do you find reading the Bible a pleasure or a chore? When the word is being preached, do you find your mind just wandering off for the duration of the sermon? Or perhaps you're more comfortable debating about the finer points of theology, how many angels can stand on a pin, rather than letting God's Word shine a light into your heart. If this is you, then I would urge you to repent. Ask God to help you to delight in His Word and to submit to its power and authority. We now come to our third section where we see the positive effects of pursuing God's method for happiness. We're talking about some of the, we've already talked about some of the characteristics of true happiness, so we're going to move fairly quickly through the next couple of sections. Verse 3 tells us that the person who pursues true happiness is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Here is a person who is full of vitality and life, regardless of the circumstances. Imagine, here we are in the arid Palestinian countryside. 
and all around are small shrubs and plants because the climate is harsh, it's dry. But as we look, there is this tree that stands tall and strong. And as you look closer, you realize it's because it's strong and it's situated by a couple of streams that have gathered near it. Its roots have reached deep into the soil and permanently placed itself right in the midst of that life source. And as you look even more, you realize its leaves are always lush and green and healthy. And in the branches, there are fruit, sweet fruit for people to enjoy. And even though the sun may scorch during the day and the nights are dreadfully cold from the desert temperature dropping, and even though sandstorms blow against it, it remains strong and healthy. This is the description of the person who is truly happy. The person who has true happiness is not shaken by the circumstances because their joy is situated in something that is much bigger than themselves and their circumstances. And notice that this joy can't be contained. It naturally radiates from them outwards towards others. So verse 3 tells us that the happy man bears fruit that in turn blesses those around them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, we shouldn't find this concept strange. They should be a natural consequence of a man or a woman who has obeyed God's word and put their trust in Jesus Christ. The truly happy person abides in Christ and Christ lives through him. Take a look at John chapter 15 and verse 4 to 5. John 15 verse 4 to 5, Jesus says there, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, we can't do it ourselves, friends. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This passage tells us that if we are in Christ, we'll bear much fruit because Christ is working in us. It's not up to our own efforts. We can't force ourselves to bear fruit. But if we are in Christ, then he will work through us and help us to bear fruit. Now, to be clear, this, these verses here is not promising that you'll avoid heartbreak or hardships or loneliness or poor health. We're not saying here that if you follow the psalm, you will avoid any kind of pain and suffering. As we've taken point, pains to point out, the happiness of God off, uh, that God offers is so much more than circumstance. The tree is going to be scorched by the hot desert sun, and it will suffer blistering sandstorms along the way. What we are saying is that the joy God provides is so much more than the world can throw at us. Happiness is not dependent on the highs and lows of life, but it's dependent on our security in Christ. And so if you were to come to our Wednesday night prayer meeting, you would know that many in our congregation go through trials all the time. We mentioned this morning our brother 
Ben and his family are going through bereavement. There are medical ailments that we pray for. There are challenging family relationships. But by God's grace, even through these circumstances, awful as they are, God's people are still able to enjoy a peace and joy that surpasses all understanding. Have you ever met a person like that? The Apostle Paul is one of these people we can learn from. He suffered afflictions and hardships and calamities. He had been beaten and imprisoned. He had been rioted against. He had been shipwrecked. He had endured sleepless nights and torture and starvation. And yet through all of this, he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We are poor, and yet make many rich. We have nothing, yet we possess everything. Now, Paul was not some kind of sadist who enjoyed being beaten up. He wasn't a superman that had been given supernatural power to endure things that no normal people could. He felt the pain and sorrow of every one of these things. And at the same time, he could say that he was always in a state of joy. And friends, the Bible is telling us this morning that this kind of happiness is available to every single person who puts their trust in Christ. Christ will completely satisfy our every need and will be sufficient for every trial that we can get challenged by. Jesus tells us in John 6, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. Paul says in Ephesians, we have unsearchable riches in Christ. And elsewhere, he says in Romans, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. And I can go on and on about all the blessings that we have in Christ. But my point is this, the consequence of following God's way to happiness is that it will transcend circumstances and ill health and persecution and sickness and poverty. And all of this is the rightful expectation of everyone who is a Christian. Now, if you are a Christian, if you profess to be a Christian, are you experiencing this joy and happiness? If not, could it be that you need to look on Jesus and be reminded of the riches that are in him? Perhaps you need to be reminded today that the circumstances you're going through, good or bad, they're all temporal. They'll pass away. And does your joy bear fruit? Does it radiate outwards and bless all those who are around you? And if not, why not, friends? Now, finally, let us turn to the last part of our text, which goes from verses 4 to 6. These verses describe what happens if you reject God's way to true happiness. You see, the Bible tells us really plainly that there are only two categories of people in this world. Those who follow God's pathway to true happiness and those who do not. You see, look at verse 1. While the psalm opens with blessed is the man, have a look at verse 6. It ends and closes with the wicked will perish. 
And friends, it may sound offensive in our modern society to think that there are just two ways. How dare you? But the Bible is clear. There is no middle ground here. Verse 4 tells us that if you are not a person who is pursuing true godly happiness, then you are destined for destruction. In contrast to the person who is godly and who is planted by streams of water, the wicked are like chaff. Now, for those who don't know, chaff is the, the dry, scaling casing of cereals and grains. It can't be digested by humans and has no other value, and so it's thrown away or destroyed. In the ancient East, the farmer would, would use a pitchfork and flick it uh, a bunch of the grains in the air, and then the wind will blow it away, and because it doesn't carry any weight, all the chaff will fly away, and then the precious grains will fall on the ground. And today, if you're a hobby farmer, you'll probably just lay it out on a tarp and turn on an industrial fan, and similarly, it will just blow away. And unlike a tree that's planted by streams of water, there are no roots to hold it down. Chaff has no weight and has no value, and therefore it's destroyed. That's why verse 5 tells us, Therefore, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And just in case, just in case you think there is some chance that the chaff will remain and not be separated from the grain, the psalmist makes it very clear. Who is the judge here? It is the Lord. The Lord knows the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked will perish. There is just no way we can fool an all-knowing, all-holy God. As we saw in, in Matthew 25 last week, there will be a final day when Jesus will come with His angels. And when He comes, He will be on His glorious throne, not as a servant, not as a baby, meek and mild, but as a king and as a judge. And when that day comes, He will separate people from one another, the righteous on the right and the wicked on the left. And those who are on the right will inherit the kingdom of God and and that has been prepared for them since the foundation of the world. And those on the left will be thrown into fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And friends, I want you to know that while this psalm is a recipe for true happiness through Jesus, it also contains a very clear warning for those who choose against Jesus. As we've mentioned earlier, the secret to true eternal happiness is to flee from sin and to flee to Jesus for salvation in obedience to God's word. God the Father has prescribed His Son, Jesus Christ, as the only way to true happiness. Jesus is the only way to true happiness. And if you go against Him, then the consequences are dire. And that's why in this very next psalm, in Psalm 2, David explicitly points out in verse 12, and it's worth for all of us to turn there, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, do you see what David is saying? I'm conscious I'm turning to Psalm 2 and not Psalm 1, and there is a purpose in this. In Psalm 1, David says, Blessed is the man who delights and meditates on the law. In Psalm 2, the same author says, 
Blessed are all who take refuge in the Son. Do you see the connection there? Those who delight in God's law are those who similarly take refuge in the Son. These are two sides of the same coin. That's because God's law points us to His Son. To delight in the law is to take refuge in the Son. And to take refuge in the Son is to delight in the law. The secret to true happiness is ultimately to kiss and bow down before the Son. And so, as we close this morning, I have to ask you pointedly, are you a person who delights in God's law? Have you taken refuge in Jesus? They are one and the same thing. If not, do you realize that no amount of money and love and power and status will ever fill that God-shaped hole in your heart? That hole can only be filled by the love of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And more importantly, not only are you missing out on true happiness that can be available to you today, there is a time that's appointed for you to face eternal judgment and condemnation. And that's not hyperbole. That's the very reason why Jesus Christ came to die on this earth, to die on the cross, to save you. And so today, today is the day of salvation. Turn to Him, and in Him alone, you will find true eternal happiness.